everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hello, Brian. Hello, Brandon. We're back for lightning rounds, and it's a, a special episode, at least for us. Um, those of you who are recent fans of the show... Uh, may not be aware, but we started this podcast right around two years ago, depending on when you're listening to this. It was December 9th, 2019, when we put up our first episode, which was episode zero, we called it, kind of an introduction. And now we're well, well over 40 episodes, over 50, counting some kind of special episodes in these lightning rounds, and right about at two years. So we we thought it might be worthwhile to reflect a little on how it's been going and where we see the podcast going. Uh, certainly, time has flown. It's hard to imagine it's, it's been this long. But, uh, you know, Brian and I started doing this because we both had this belief that this style of uh, teaching had value. And what we mean by that is case-based or, or scenario-based uh, sort of simulation, but you might call it low fidelity simulation. Of course, you can do classic sim training where you go to a, a lab and you have expensive mannequins and, and there's a lot of preparation involved and that's great stuff, but it has its own limitations. You know, you can only do it so often. It requires a lot of resources and preparation. Um, and you can get some of the same impact with much lower tech sort of simulation where you really just walk somebody verbally through a case and that can be very thoroughly fleshed out if you can provide all those details, or it can be much more general. But this is something we both had used a lot in the past for teaching, and we, and we thought it would make sense to use a podcast for it. Yeah. So there's a lot of benefits, like you said, in doing simulation. I've done a lot of research in simulation training. I teach simulation uh, both to students and, and uh, postgraduate fellows. Uh, but there's a lot of downsides to it, too, and expense and time are two of the big ones. Scenario teaching like this is one of the things that I've really learned from doing this the past two years is something you can just sit down, you know, this afternoon, if this ICU is slow, I can sit down with some students and run some scenarios with them, you know, and yeah, we don't just make these up off the top of our heads, but there is some element of free form to it where you just talk about maybe scenarios that you're familiar with or um, things that you've personally been through. Yeah, the, the flexibility is one of the, the real tools. I mean, you can use anything from, you know, some cases we've done have been very uh, thoroughly developed, especially when there's a lot of data involved that seems useful to have, the lab results and images and things like that. And it, or it could be as casual as, you know, you're on service with a student or something and you say, hey, you know, what would you do in this case? Or look at this result. Well, you know, what might you do if it was like that or whatever? Um, and the other real asset of it, I think, and what we felt was a somewhat unique uh, niche it could fill, is the ability to teach kind of details and logistics and more tacitly taught things that otherwise, many times you have to learn with experience on the job. They're not well taught in, in textbooks and traditional media, I think, because they're, they're too sort of granular. You know, a textbook might say, well, in this situation, you do this, you, you give this drug or this therapy or whatever. But in reality, there's so many little things that, that fill in the, the gaps of that. Well, how do you do it? You know, when do you do it? 
what are their priorities? What do you do first and second and third? What, are, what should you look out for? And so on. And a lot of that you generally learn um, from your colleagues or by actually doing it. But obviously the goal of clinical education is to shortcut some of that. So, you know, we thought we could get a lot of that through a you know, talked through podcast format. And um, hopefully it's worked. I mean, what do you think, Brian? It has this shaped out sort of the way we imagined? I think so. I think there's two other real big benefits to this that I've come across. One is when we have guests on, it's really nice to get the perspective of how you personally would handle this. Right, so that's something beyond a textbook. Um, you know, often we say in critical care, there's there's multiple ways to do things, and the textbook may say one thing, uh, but it turns out that's not always true across the board. And sometimes the textbook may say you could do this, or you could do this, or you could do that. And so it's nice to get people's opinions. We've had some really great guests on. Uh, it's nice to know how does Matt Shuba handle fluid overload? How does Elliot Tapper? deal with liver failure, not just how does the book say to do it. Uh, but the, the other thing that's nice is it's fun. And I don't mean that just in the terms of we've had a lot of fun doing this, which is certainly true, but I think there's power in story and you cement that knowledge a little bit better when it's connected to something like that. I know when I lecture, whether it's to students or when I speak at conferences or whatever, I try to do cases and tell stories because that's how I remember things best, right? I can remember that time when I had that patient that did such and such. And so that's how I remember how to deal with heart failure. That's how I remember how to deal with uh, a GI bleed, not from reading, you know, a textbook description of what to do. Yeah, I think stories are are compelling for that reason. They are interesting and therefore they engage us, but also they're the best way to get at some of these issues. And like you said, it's m- most of the things you would learn in this kind of way are uh you could have done them many other ways. It's getting to a level of detail where there is no one right answer. It's about practice. But that, that you still need to learn that. You need to learn practice around these different situations and diseases. And in reality, you would learn that from perhaps uh, you're learning from a attending physician. All right, that's great. You learn from them. But yeah, that's limited. There's only perhaps one guy you're working with, and then maybe later you work with somebody else. But And they're all sort of maybe in the same institution. So that's a certain perspective. So being able to show how... a a particular expert uh, handles something, I, I think is is just helpful on that granular level. And even if, it, I mean, heck, even if you don't agree with their approach, even if it's a particular angle that you, you would do something different, it's helpful to see. I, I think especially people who've only maybe worked in one place, the, that limitation in their perspective can really change your understanding of medicine. You start to think there is only one way to do things, which is the how they do things locally. Um, and I mean, something as simple as changing jobs and getting a different angle on that can be so kind of mind expanding. And this is a little flavor of that. You know, how are people dealing with things in all kinds of places who have, you know, great expertise in their own perspective on things? Uh, I think that's helpful. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the benefits that we see, you know, in medical training. And then this is not really true for nurse practitioners. And I don't know if it is for PAs, but you know, a lot of physicians I know, they go to medical school and then they go somewhere else for residency. And then they go a third place for fellowship. And then they end up working at yet a fourth place because that diversity of experience uh, ends up being more beneficial than just doing all your training at one place. Now, one of the things that I think I am uh, surprised by is now that we're two years in, um, the the audience has been has been pretty big. And of course, everyone who starts a project like this on some level imagines it's going to be a huge hit. But you know, you and I have both been around for long enough and had enough years and probably failures behind us to realize that a lot of things <laughs> are not booming successes. But um, you know, we've we've had a steady following that's only grown. We, uh, at least the past, uh, it's been a good few months now. It's We've been kind of reliably charting in the top 10 or 20 medical podcasts, uh, at least in the US. Um, we're 4.6 or 4.7 out of 5 ratings on um, on Apple iTunes these days. People seem to enjoy it. Um, and that's nice to see. I, I one of, I'm surprised a little bit at who the audience seems to be. A lot of the ones who have kind of actively engaged with the show, um, a lot of it seems to be nursing, which I don't know if I would have expected. Uh, I think there's a kind of a cross-section of different specialties and people at different levels of training. Um, I don't know. I mean, you're a nurse. I mean, I don't, do you have a, an angle on why you think that they might be interested? Uh, yeah, I've thought about this because I do get a lot. I get this a lot. Um, when I round in different areas of the hospital, um, people will say, hey, I've, I've been listening to your podcast. And uh, so it, first of all, it always kind of catches me off guard. Like you, I think we hoped this would be popular, but I honestly kind of thought it would maybe be you and me and maybe a couple of friends listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so it's always amazing to me when people listen to it, especially if it's not someone that I have gone up to and said, hey, I have this podcast, you should listen to it. Here you go. Right. It's people who have found it sort of organically. Uh, so, but why is it nursing? So I have some, I've been given this some thought and I think part of it is, um, there's just not a lot of great, uh, great resources out there readily available, um, for critical care nurses and there's, they're getting better. Um, but I, you know, when I was years ago, when I was getting ready to go to NP school and looking at going to NP school, I listened to a lot of podcasts like this to learn, um, to prepare myself for that. But I started listening to um, podcasts like this when I was a brand new ICU nurse. Jeff Guy's Surgical ICU Rounds um, taught me a ton about being an ICU nurse. Um, you know, MCRIT taught me a ton about being an ICU nurse. And so I think that's the thing. So I guess the thing I would say is nurses who are out there listening um, somebody step up, do a nursing podcast. That'd be great, right? Because some of the stuff we talk about certainly is applicable, but there's a lot of stuff we don't cover uh, that is important for new nurses to know um, that you guys could cover really well. Well, and I, I, I think, and I don't want to say much because I'm, I'm not a nurse, but the perspective I've had on a lot of nursing education is that when it's something is specifically for nurses, it often seems to be focused on topics that are um, a little bit sort of clinical adjacent, meaning nursey. Yeah, it's sort of nursey. Yeah. Like, so if you had education on something like 
I don't know, necrotizing fasciitis or something. It's not as focused in what I don't know, they'd say the medical model sometimes, where we've, you know, they'll say, you know, this is about the uh, pathophysiology and the diagnostic process and therapeutics and things. But it, it's sort of some, something else. Um, and I, frankly, I don't always totally understand it. And I, in fairness, I've heard that from a lot of nurses as well. They're going through school or NP school or something. And, you know, we'll look at their list of courses and I'll be like, what are all these courses? And they'll be like, I don't really know either. So, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, it, it, nurses are at the heart of what we're doing in medicine. So it certainly seems like at least a, a large part of medical education pertains to them just as well. I mean, if we're doing a certain thing from the like provider side of it, well, they're they're doing it. I mean, they're the ones implementing a lot of that. So clearly there's interest to them. And there may be sort of nursing specific things, but uh, I mean, they should, I would like to think still know a lot of what we're talking about too. And maybe things like how to chart or like, I don't know, you know, handle the stopcocks or something is sort of a nursing specific topic, but a lot of it overlaps. Absolutely. I, um, when I first started going to NP school, I said for those, you know, five years, it took me, I did a doctoral program part-time. So it took me five years to do NP school for those five years. I was a better IC nurse than I'd ever been. And I said, I, I think I wish every nurse could go to NP school because you, you learn pathophysiology, you learn pharmacology, you learn all this stuff on such a deeper level that makes you really understand a lot of what you're doing as a nurse better than you did before. I There's a lot of stuff that I just took for granted that I knew why we did it. And I didn't really know until I was in NP school. And then it suddenly dawned on me and I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. There is a ton of overlap. And I think maybe that's why... Um, Maybe that's why nurses have have kind of latched onto this is that podcasts like this uh, give them that um, sort of deeper insight. Yeah, there seems to be a, a void for it. Um, now, looking back, you know, I, I think we've both learned a lot about podcasting in general in in this format. Um, you know, we both have done a lot of education in different formats previously, but I, I think kind of audio work like this was new to us. And I, I think, and this is. This is how I felt coming in as a goal, but I think it's only become stronger now that we have some experience. I think I've found that what makes the best episodes are the ones that are the most concise and tight and focused. And what I mean is, and I don't want to put anyone on blast here, but I still listen to any number of podcasts, but I'll... Maybe not as many even as I used to, medical shows. And what I feel like I have an even lower tolerance for than I used to is um, sort of fluff. You listen to 30 minutes, 60 minutes of something, and 15 minutes of it is introductions and outros. And then, I mean, especially nowadays, 10 minutes of it is ads. And then when in the actual content... So much of it is just kind of filler. And this applies, you know, to a, a conference presentation or a lecture, or almost any education as well. But there's X amount of content in there, and you can dilute it into any amount of other stuff, whether it's like ums and kind of rambling <laughs> or digressions, which sometimes have some utility, but usually are not the goal. So our, our goal from the beginning was to have a, a pretty focused, tight, 
educational format where you turn it on and it's pretty much just the good stuff you want to hear. Um, and then that's it. And I think that's only become more true. I mean, the, the guests and the cases that have ended up being most useful, I think, really kind of just got to the point. <laughs> and that's harder to do than it may sound because it requires good planning on our part. It requires a, a the person who's engaging with it, whether it's a guest or one of us, to be able to kind of get right down to it and be, uh, you know, a good uh, orator. Um, but those, I think, have ended up being the good episodes. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there's something to be said for a good short episode. And I was, you know, when we first started out, I was not one who thought we needed to necessarily have a time limit on things. And, uh, you know, if it went long, it went long. It's fine. Um, but, you know, I've noticed more and more in my own listening habits and then talking to people, there's a lot of um, somebody posted on Twitter the other day uh, and tagged us and, and a couple other podcasts, which, frankly, I was incredibly flattered to be included with. Uh, and said something like, it's been a great year of commuter education for me. And I thought, you know, you know, that's a lot of what people use podcasts for, right? That's what I did when I was studying for the CCRN exam or when I was in NP school or studying for my NP boards was I would listen to these things while I was driving to and from the hospital. Yeah. When I was a resident, and, I was commuting from yeah. uh, DC to Baltimore. It was way longer than I wanted it to be. And that's what I did. Yeah. And so that's a perfect time to get a little bit of learning in. And if it's, if you've got a, a 30 minutes to an hour of just jam-packed education, it makes it so efficient, right? You you don't have to keep breaking it up and you can get a lot done. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, a fine line here because like we said, a lot of what we're trying to flesh out is details and small level stuff that, you know, it may, it may bear discussion. Um, but that doesn't, I, it's almost like if you make your goal to be as concise as possible, then you have room to expand these little issues. Whereas if it's all kind of uh, fluffy and aerated to begin with, then once you've like spent time chatting about all these details, then it would be like a 10-hour show, which is not possible. So it, it, you, it's like you need to be concise in order to give you space to talk about the things that you want to talk about. And you know, if you have a one-hour show, that, that's fine. But you know, one-hour, two-hour show, is there an hour of actual content in there? Probably not. It's probably less. But if it's like 10 minutes, then, you know, <laughs> you did something wrong, I think. Yeah. And I think there's, I've listened to some podcasts in the past that, um, you know, and again, I don't, I'm not going to call anybody out and I don't want to just sit and badmouth people because there's a ton of good stuff out there. And uh, from being on this side of the microphone, I know it's hard, right? So people that, get out and try and don't do a great job. That's okay. It's hard. Um, but I've listened to some that, that, you know, sort of devolve into uh, the Chris Farley show. Remember that skit from Saturday Night Live where Chris Farley would have a guest on and he'd say, Hey, you remember that time that you did whatever thing? That was awesome. <laughs> and that's as far as it would go. Right. Like, and, and, and you just feel like, what you've done is you've taken a, a, a group of friends who might sit around and tell, jokes and stories that are all meaningful to them, but really don't have any meaning to me or anybody else. So I think that's part of it too. Yeah. And it, it is hard. You know, a lot of 
topics probably start out being planned well. This applies to us as well as anyone else. Um, and then by the time you get to the end of it, it didn't quite pan out how you hoped, whether the the format didn't quite reach the the things that you meant to. There's there's always a wild card if you have a guest. You kind of never know what you're you're going to get there. People, there are people who are brilliant and know so much good stuff, and their ability to present it is not always let's say well suited to the format or at least it maybe it's their first time in this format and then they're still figuring it out so that's tricky but i think as time has passed we've gotten better at it we've also gotten better at finding the right guests and at this point we have guests that we know are good who have started to do some repeats which has been really helpful what um what have been some of your favorite episodes or guests that we've had man i will say i think we have won the lottery a lot of times with our guests. Uh, I can't, I'm trying to think. I can't think of somebody we've had on, and I'm not just saying this because I don't want to offend people. I can't think of somebody we've had on that I go, that didn't work out like I hoped. I think everybody has been better than I hoped they would be. Um, because you're right. The, the holy grail of this is to find somebody who's smart, who knows their stuff, but can also communicate it effectively. Um, you know, certainly I think, you know, just to, to name a few of the, once Elliot Tapper has always been great. I love having him on Matt Shuba is always great. I love having him on Ross Hoffmeyer. Um, you know, just tons of tons of great folks that we've had on. There's tons of folks that we've had on that we keep t- saying, we're, we're going to have you back. We're going to have you back. And I mean that we are, if you're listening and we've told you that we believe, believe us, we are going to have you back. Um, you know, it's really great. It's, it's hard scheduling those guest episodes. Um, because it's hard, you know, we're all busy people. It's hard finding a time that three busy people can all get together virtually over Zoom and record. But um, but we've, I think we've been super fortunate with them. Yeah, I, I, I loved Elliot Tapper. We had him on for two. Um, perfect example of somebody who knows his stuff brilliantly, but also is great at expressing it. And I, I think a, a great example of having somebody from outside of our main specialty of critical care, yeah. but in a specialty that has a ton of overlap, GI, which means that there's so much low-hanging fruit, stuff to to teach us from their perspective that otherwise, you know, it's not like we're rounding with gastroenterologists. It, you don't always get a good exposure to that. Um, yeah, Matt Shuba, so great. I really enjoyed um, having Dennis Kim on talk about some trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, I think we started to do the, these shorter ones like this, or at least they used to be shorter, these lightning rounds, which are more just discussion. Um, this was meant to provide a ability to talk about things in a more general sense rather than specific cases, which obviously is a little contradicts what we've been saying. But there are certainly times when it's good to talk, you know, not just build out a whole case around um, stress ulcer prophylaxis, but just talk about sort of generally how we handle stress ulcer prophylaxis or mm-hmm. somewhat kind of clinical adjacent things like this. Um, but I think these have been helpful as well. I, uh, I think the most useful one we've, we've done has maybe been, we talked about kind of career development for APPs. Uh, this is a, a few months back now, uh, kind of walking through the different stages of, you know, how you'd have a critical care career as a PA or an MP. And I, there, there was a lot of good feedback on that. And I think was helpful. Um, sort of topics that are not always well discussed. I mean, maybe we're in a niche area, you know, being an advanced provider for critical care. There's only so many people in this sector. But I think, uh, you know, one of the obvious questions at this point would be, where do we go from here? What Do you think that there 
our changes or kind of further growth in our format or what we would hope to achieve with the show or just more of the same? I think, first of all, I think more of the same is good. Um, you know, that's, that's sort of the bread and butter of things. But I do, I like these lightning rounds uh, more and more. Like you said, for little things that we don't really give a lot of thought to. I was talking with one of our uh, APP fellows this morning, and we were talking about, you said stress ultra prophylaxis, what made me think of it. Uh, and he was talking about, you know, wanting to do some sort of presentation on stress ulcer prophylaxis and who needs it, when and how it should be done. And I said, you know, I think that'd be awesome because I don't give a lot of thought to that. Um because it's it's so minor, but it's important. And so that's why I think these lightning rounds are good. Because, yeah, I don't know that we can do a whole episode on H2 versus PPI blockers. Uh, but as part of a bigger picture on those little day-to-day things, it's a, it's a great way to fit it in. One thing I would love to, to do more of, I've really enjoyed two guests that come to mind. Min LeCong and Ross Hoffmeyer. Not only are they both fantastic guys with cool accents, but one of the reasons I like them is talking about diversity. These are guys who practice outside of the American system that we're, you and I are used to. And I think it's so interesting to kind of get the take on somebody who it just from a pure medicine standpoint, right? Not trying to operate within the confines of a system necessarily, but just from a pure medical standpoint, I'd love to get more folks from outside the U.S. on the show. And I'm a little bit of a healthcare policy dork. Um, I think that stuff's really fascinating. And I would love to um, maybe talk more about how does health, how does critical care delivery work in a given system that's not the way we know how things work in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a great example. I mean, that, that, it's just like, you know, you change jobs and you get a different perspective on what people can do. You yeah. know, changing countries where you're working is that on steroids. You the thing, All the things that you thought you had to do a certain way, I mean, they don't even have that drug. They have a different drug. The drug that you use, they call something different. Um, things that you wouldn't have imagined are possible are <laughs> done differently. Yeah. You know, they're up in, in Paris putting people on ECMO on the floor of the Louvre. I mean, it's just a such a great look at different approaches to things. I agree. That would be awesome. The, um, you know, I think we can continue to obviously do these cases and evolve the format. I think kind of continuing to hone down the process. I think early on, we felt like when it was the first time addressing something or the first time talking to someone of a particular specialty, we had an obligation to be really general and kind of hit all the, the big topics and get their perspective on, you know, whole diseases. But maybe now that some time has passed, we're more open to focus more on specific questions. And like I said, I I think that often makes the best sort of show, you know, one theme or one situation and kind of build that out because, you know, then you can make use of your time and really get at the, at all those little nitty gritty things. Um, I'd love to develop more engagement with the audience. Because I know that we we have at this point a reasonably strong listenership, but a lot of it is passive. Um, we haven't had that much interaction with people listening. Occasionally on on Twitter or places like that, we get an occasional email or or comment on the on the podcast feeds. But 
There hasn't been a whole lot of that, and it, it would be great to have. You know, I I would love to have people maybe sending in questions that we can um, we can address on the show, suggestions for topics, things like that, um, discussion on social media or other places. Some of that uh, we may be able to promote by doing things the right way. Some of it just comes from size as well. You know, the larger the listenership, the more people will be actively involved because you know if. 0.5% of people interact with the show, then, you know, if your listenership is a million, that's a lot more people than if it were a hundred. Um, but I'd like to sort of see us continue in that direction. Yeah, I think that would be great. I'd love to have more interaction. You know, I know how do we do that? I don't know. I think we start with Twitter and where we are right now and kind of go from there. Yeah. And, you know, I maybe we can close by mentioning that. I, I feel like this has really been a a project born out of the modern era and social media to some extent. Not everyone knows this. Brian and I met on the internet. Um, we have at this point never met in person, although at this point we've known each other for several years. We've collaborated on a number of different projects, including this podcast. Um, but it's been just a incredibly rewarding uh, relationship, which has been 100% you know, born from these modern uh, formats for communication. And a lot of the, the show itself has been facilitated by that as well. You know, many, you know, I would almost say most of our guests have been people that we know primarily or entirely through the internet, people we've known through like medical Twitter or other podcasts. Um, none of this I don't think would have been possible in a, I don't know, an older era where we didn't have all these other ways to communicate. You know, we would, uh, we could, I guess, have guests that we know from our own hospitals and, and things like that. But the the diversity of, of viewpoints that's been made possible and the ability to kind of reach out to people as, I, I mean, this is, this is the good part of medical, social media. I mean, I think especially Twitter is probably the, the main thing that you and I are using. Um, and then, of course, podcasting has its own format. There used to be a lot of uh, other things like email and discussion lists and things, which are maybe kind of a dwindling format. But I mean, it's just, it's become a great resource for medical education in the modern world that I, I have been dependent on since I was uh a learner. And now as more of an educator, I also, I think it's just, it's a huge tool. Yeah. And I will tell you, I've been, that's another thing that's talking about things that have surprised you. Um, that's one thing that has surprised me over the past two years. Uh, a lot of the people that we've had on the show are people who we literally just cold called, you know, we just tweeted at them or emailed them and said, Hey, we have this podcast and here's a link to it because you've probably never heard of it. Maybe you should listen to it. And if you like it, would you come on the show and do something? And I would say 95% of those people have ended up coming on, um, you know, including, you know, some fairly well-known folks. Um, so shout out to the the medical community who's engaged in social media, uh, who not only... Um, who not only are out there doing stuff of their own, but they put their money where their mouth is and they step up and come on other people's podcasts and they help out. And 
Uh, yeah, so and I mean we're great. we're grateful, but it's you know what a great addition to the you know educational world and to medicine. I mean, if the only way for these smart experts to disseminate ideas were by you know publishing a journal article or giving a talk at a conference, I mean, wh- how much a smaller audience that would be, and how much more infrequent that would be than if they're able to leverage tools like this to communicate. I'm yeah. I'm so glad that I mean you can get on Twitter and you can you can hear uh, some, you know, world-class expert talking about a disease that interests you. You can communicate with them and ask a question and they answer. I mean this stuff was not possible 20 years ago. Yeah, I um did a talk at the American Association of Critical Care Nurses annual meeting a few years ago on using social media for your own continued education. And uh, somebody who helped me out, a, a great resource, is David Crippen, who is an intensivist. He's quasi-retired now at Pitt. And he is the guy, if you're out there in the world, you've heard of this, this the CCML, International Critical Care Mailing List. He's the guy that started all that. And he sent me a PowerPoint presentation when I, I put something up saying, I'm going to do this talk. Does anybody have ideas. He sent me a PowerPoint presentation that he made on the benefit of social media as a teaching tool and an engagement tool. And I think actually used it in terms of for a, for promotion, right? Because people in academics to get promoted, you got to publish things, you got to speak, you got to write books. And he, he made this great argument that, hey, in 2020, 2021, you can do all that stuff. But also, you got a podcast, you got to tweet, you got to get out there on social media. That's another way. That's just as beneficial for the overall uh, educational community as writing books and publishing journal articles. Yeah. And that, that I think it's been one of the sticking areas, people trying to figure out how to translate these newer uh, avenues into more traditional sort of currency, because in worlds like academic medicine, a lot of the rewards and the milestones in a career are based on traditional academia, things like publishing articles and sitting on committees and things that are are not, you know, you know, publishing uh, Twitter tutorials. Um, right. But I mean, I, I, I think you and I both feel like in a lot of ways that these uh, formats are more useful than a lot of that traditional stuff, at least if you're going by what actually helps people learn and adds to the world. Um, so trying to be able to say, you know, you know, I'm, I, I want to get academically promoted. This is the work that I've been doing, and this is how I've been helping the world of medicine. And it's things that are sort of digital or yeah. these newer formats. And I think people are figuring out how to make that work, but it sometimes requires presenting your resume a little differently or, you know, finding ways to, to convert or translate what you've been doing into concepts people understand and so on. Yeah. If nothing else, there's the speed of it, right? Um, I mean, if you've ever been involved in publishing, you know, uh, a journal article, you submit that to the journal and it's, it's not going to be published for months. If, if you're lucky, uh, it's just the nature of, of that industry versus I can tweet something this afternoon and start disseminating knowledge. I remember one one example that I use when the sepsis three guidelines came out, I listened to an episode of, I think it was MCRIT that afternoon, the day they came out where they had guys discussing this. So 
I mean, talk about up to the minute, right? As they're released, they're discussing it already. Yeah, and um, there's there's downsides, right? Like it can be too fast. You know, there's a much less review, and there's probably more opportunity for things to be wrong or poorly thought out or whatever. But it just, I, you don't know. Sure. You can't help looking at maybe a a you know traditional peer reviewed journal article or certainly like a like a textbook, and it. It it just feels like a format that is such a dinosaur, and I hate to say that, but it like there's there's good stuff in these, and it's so hard to get the good stuff out because of all the issues. Like you write a like good textbook, and it's like years until anybody can read it if they ever do, and then you're just holding this like this object that is the is so many man hours of expert labor, and you're looking at it, and you're like. Was this worth it? Like, aren't there other ways that people could have gotten this information that were so much more efficient and, you know, so much less of a, like, drain on, like, humanity? And I don't know. I mean, I I just, I feel like there is so much room in the world to try to evolve these traditional formats without losing the good stuff there. But I'm not the person to figure out how. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a place for those things. I mean, I certainly, you know, I wrote a textbook. Uh, I write journal articles. But you're right it's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. And at the end of the day, I honestly think more people hear this podcast that will read my textbook. Yeah. I mean, the, the middle format is um, like blogging, you know, sort of yeah. text-based, maybe longer format stuff on the internet. And that, you know, sounds like a more recent technology too, but I almost feel like that is starting to dwindle. Like, I, I mean, I have an educational blog, Critical Concepts. There's a bunch of critical care stuff on there. And I, I, it's people, I think, make use of it in a, in a passive way. But the activity and the engagement with that sort of content is is like nothing compared to mixed media like podcasting or, I don't know, videos. YouTube is booming. It's like people have a hard time even reading anymore. So, of course, I'm going to complain about that one because that one I'm, I'm more interested in. But, it, you know, there's this ongoing march towards newer methods of communicating information. And I think it sort of behooves us all to try to, you know, work with the newer ones, get the good stuff out of them and try to preserve the older ones to get the good stuff out of them. Because, I mean, as much as we love, let's say, podcasting, you can't learn everything th- everything through a podcast. It just doesn't right. make sense to teach certain things this way. All right. What else, Brian? Anything else? I think this has been good. It's been a good two years. Uh, I thought This has been fun to, to reminisce. We could talk all afternoon about, you know, our favorite guests and favorite episodes and things, ideas for the future. But I think this has been good. So I think I would close just by saying, if you're listening out there, thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for um, thanks for liking what we do. Um, and we want to hear from you. So get on Twitter. Uh, hit us up. Email us. Go to the website. There's ways to get a hold of us. Um, let us know what you think. Let us know what you want to hear. Let us know if this has been helpful or if we're just... Uh, screaming into the void. I don't think we are. I don't think that many people would be listening if it was bad, but uh, you know, let us know. That's right. Uh, we love you all. Thank you for you know joining us on this. Please tell us what you'd like to hear. And you know, we don't often kind of self promote, but please consider if you have found this useful, uh, spreading the word. Um, maybe give us a, a review or subscribe on your podcast platforms. Tell other people about them. And if you're on something like Twitter or you have email, uh, please feel free to you know shoot us a question, uh, give us a comment. We'd love to hear it all. 
And otherwise, maybe in a, another year or two, we'll uh, we'll check back. Yeah. My wife keeps asking me when we're going to have merch. So I don't know. <laughs> maybe one day we'll have merch. Sure. We'll get on it. We'll print some mugs. <laughs> All right, Brian. All right. Talk soon. Thanks for listening.